All right. Well, we read that this morning, Psalm 149, which went well with this morning's uh, passage that God does give to his saints a double-edged sword, which in this life is the word of God. <clears throat> and we do bind up nations and princes and people when we proclaim the word of the Lord and what God's word says. And then what we proclaim from the word of God is what God has decreed to bring about in the end. So the judgment that we speak and that we pronounce from the word of God to this present world, it will come to pass on the day of judgment according to the word of the Lord. And that brings us to uh, chapter 25, which we're dealing with marriage today, with marriage. And concerning this topic, there's a lot that needs to be said, especially in our present uh, generation, uh, because marriage... Uh, has been all but undermined and demolished uh, in America today and even in the Western world and in much, many parts of the world. Uh, the institution of marriage has been undermined at every turn, at every corner, and the result is misery, chaos upon society, upon families, in the home, in the churches. Really, you see this uh, in many, many places. So we're going to be looking at marriage today, which is chapter 25 of the Confession. And let's begin with a word of prayer. We'll have some introductory comments, and then we'll read this first paragraph. And we'll just deal with this first paragraph, because there's another issue that's not mentioned here that probably will come to your mind, and something that would be good for us to deal with as well. Uh, so let's pray, and then we'll begin our study. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. Lord, we thank you for the word that you've given to us, Lord, that teaches us Lord, everything that we need for life and godliness. Lord, we know that marriage is an institution that was created by you. Lord, that you are the one who established it. Lord, you were the one who brought the first couple together in Adam and Eve, uh, in the garden, before sin had even entered into the world. So we know that it is a very noble institution, Lord, one ordained by you uh, for your glory and for the good of man and for the flourishing of the home and all human society. Yet, Lord, in our own day, we see that marriage has been undermined in many ways, uh, and this institution has been uh, corrupted, it's been polluted, Lord, it's being redefined even in our own midst, and Lord, the result is just more and more sin and misery and chaos in this present world. So, Lord, I pray that even if the world has rejected this institution, that we in the church, Lord, that we would think about it correctly, that we would take our marriages seriously, Lord, that we would see the good and benefit that come from them, and that, Lord, we would be faithful to the wife of our youth, and that, Lord, in our case, in our homes, there would be stability and harmony, uh, and, Lord, that our marriages would be a bedrock uh, for raising up a next generation of those who love you and who fear your name. So, Lord, we pray that you would establish our homes and our marriages, Lord, in the fear of the Lord, and that, Lord, you would give us your word and your wisdom on our lips, Lord, to proclaim to this present world, Lord, what the word of the Lord is, Lord, your decree concerning the institution of marriage, so that others might know as well, and they might turn from their sin and serve you, the true and living God. So, Lord, be with us, help us today, Lord, give us clear thinking uh, concerning these things, and it is in Christ's name that we pray, amen. All right, so marriage <clears throat> is a very important topic and a very important institution, uh, because it is the foundation of all human society. All right, as I mentioned earlier uh, in, in the prayer, that the Lord was the one who established marriage, and he established it with Adam and Eve. When there were only two people on the earth, God established marriage as the first and most noble of all human institutions, and marriage is the bedrock of the home, and it's the bedrock of society. Without marriage, then everything crumbles and it isn't good. And we see this reflected in our own world. Right? When there is a stable home, right? when there is a good marriage, ideally a Christian man and a Christian woman who both love the Lord and are seeking to serve them, Him, and they're in agreement and harmony, and they're raising their children in the fear of the Lord, typically the result of that are wholesome children that are raised up, who become good citizens, who become hard workers, who are themselves good husbands and good fathers, good wives and good mothers, and that perpetuates generation after generation after generation. 
But you also see the converse, that when the home is attacked, when there is divorce, when there is division, right, when uh, children are born out of wedlock and those types of things are happening uh, all across our society, does that typically produce upstanding, wholesome citizens, even in this present world, much less true believers and those who fear the Lord? And that is almost never the case, right? And almost never the case in those areas in our society where marriage, where children are born out of wedlock, <clears throat> you are seeing all sorts of chaos and misery. And it's not good. It's not good for, for anyone. It's not good in that way. So the home and the marriage, this relationship is essential to society and to living a life that is pleasing to God. And since God is the one who founded marriage, then we should not be surprised that the devil and the world and the flesh would hate that which God honors, right? The devil hates God. He hates everything true. He hates everything that is good and right in this present world. So we should not be surprised that marriages will be attacked, the home will be attacked, and that these things are going to be undermined. Because when you can undermine the home, and especially the marriage, the relationship between the husband and the wife, or you demean it in some way by redefining it and making it mean whatever you want it to mean, then it is going to ultimately lead to the destruction of the home, the destruction of the children, and the destruction of society. And it will produce more and more sin and more and more misery and chaos. And this is a big problem today, right? Today in our own present generation. And this because of the rise of Marxism, right? Marxism, which is Satanism, it is a satanic ideology founded by the devil through one of his servants, Karl Marx, who, by the way, was himself a plagiarist, so he wasn't the inventor of it. He gets credit for it, but he himself was a plagiarizer. He's also a lawyer, right? You know those lawyers, you can't trust them. Okay, not, not really. We've got one lawyer that we like, that's Bruce, but the rest of them are not trustworthy. Okay, so anyway, for the most part, most politicians are lawyers. That tells you everything you need to know. But Karl Marx was also a lawyer, and his goal was the undermining of society, right? To put one group against another, right? In his case, what he was proposing was cultural Marxism or economic Marxism, where you had the ruling class or the owners or the factory owners against the factory workers, and that the workers needed to rise up against the owners and seize what was theirs and take it for themselves so that instead of being oppressed, they would then be the ones who are ruling, right? And of course, the solution to this is to give all the power to the communists, and then they'll do it for you. But what really happens is you just replace one set of rulers with another set of rulers who are seeking to destroy and undermine you. So whatever they say, Marxists, whatever they say about liberation, about freedom, about uh, the rights of people, the rights of workers, the rights of the common man, you know that they're liars. They're liars. There's no truth in them because they are just like their father, the devil. When they speak, they speak only lies because those countries where communism is uh, prominent, are the people liberated? Are the people free? No. They are the most oppressive uh, countries, nations in the entire world because this is the very nature of communism. So this is what they do, and they know what they're doing. Right? They know what they're doing. There's useful idiots that they use. This is what they call them, useful idiots. These are the people, the yuppies, the ones that go to the colleges, the liberals, the... Uh, fair-minded liberals that think they're going to go out and change the world, but the ones who are pulling the strings, the ones at the top, in our case, the Obamas, the Clintons, these kinds of people who are Marxists, they don't believe in it. They're just using it to take power for themselves, to get more money for themselves, and to put everyone under their thumb. So we shouldn't listen to anything that they say. They hate authority. They hate everything that is good and right. And this view of Marxism, which started economically, has also spilled over into cultural areas as well. Cultural Marxism, and this seeks to divide society into different groups, the oppressed and the oppressors. And in the case of marriage, it has spilled over into that. The husbands are the oppressors, and the women, the wives, are the ones who are oppressed. In the home, the fathers are the oppressors, the children are the oppressed. The mothers are oppressors. The children are oppressed, 
right? The majority in the, in the world, right, whoever the majority race is, they're the oppressors. The minority races are the oppressed, right? Those who hold to the typical view of sexuality, right, heterosexuals, they are the oppressors in the minority group, the homosexuals and the various uh, uh, symbols that they have for that, they're the ones that are oppressed, and they need to be liberated from the oppression of the ruling class or of society, of culture, and we need to undermine these institutions that are bringing this about. And marriage is central to that, right? Marriage is central to God and the order that he established in this world. So those who hate authority, those who hate order, they're going to attack that. And that is what has been happening in the West and in America for many, many years, right? Over 150 years, this has been happening. The feminist movement is a part of that movement, right? Of overturning society and the norms and order that God has placed within it. And this is what's been happening and why marriage and the home society is crumbling around us, right? Do we think things are getting better or are they getting worse? Right? We're going from bad to worse. That's what's happening in our own day. And a large part of this is because of all of these issues with feminism, with the marriage, with uh, the home, uh, with homosexuality. All of these things are working against the truth, against the Bible, against righteousness. And we have to oppose these things. We have to stand against them. We can't believe these lies. We have to reject them, and then we have to tell people this is what the Bible says, that you cannot believe these lies. You have to reject them. So we have to believe in marriage. We have to believe that it is good, that it was created by God, that it is an honorable institution, that it is good for there to be a husband and a wife. Yes, as novel as that sounds today, a man and a woman, not two men, not two women, not two men and one woman, not a man with a tree, not a man with a robot or a woman with a dog or themselves, right? Because they'll say that you can marry yourself now. This is all nonsense, right? And when they do this, it's undermining the legitimate institution. Whenever you redefine it, you are undermining it. And no one has the authority to redefine marriage. God established it, God defined it between one man and one woman. No court in the land has the authority to redefine marriage so two men cannot get married. It's impossible for that to happen, right? They can pretend as if they're married. The court can say that they're married, but they're not really married, right? In the sight of God, it is an abomination, and we have to hate it and detest it with all that we have. We certainly cannot buy into this, right? It's, it is all... No good, and it is for destruction. It will destroy everything. Okay. Uh, chapter 25, paragraph 1. <clears throat> That's my opening rant on marriage. Okay. Paragraph 1. We'll deal with this and then another issue related to it today. Marriage is to, between, is to be between one man and one woman. Wow. Isn't that a simple, novel concept? One man and one woman, Right? Man and woman, male and female. And yes, we can know the difference between a man and a woman. You don't have to be a biologist to know the difference between a man and a woman. Isn't it very easy? You don't even have to go to medical school. The doctor, the child comes out, they hold it up, it's a boy. Or they hold up, it's a girl, right? Everyone knows. Even when I was a child and we used to do cattle grading at the school, the easiest thing to pick was male or female. Right? Even as a sixth grader, I knew that's a bull, that's a male, and that one over there, that's a female. You could spot it. Anyone can know these things. So this is not hard to understand. It's very simple. It's natural. It's common. People understand these things. So it shows you how far, how wicked, how depraved our culture is. Right? They are denying the truth, the obvious Right? Though they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. This is the epitome of the suppression of the truth. Whenever you say, no, two men can be married, they go together. No, it's impossible. Two women can be married, they go together. No, it's not possibly, it's not possible according to human anatomy. This doesn't work this way. And everyone knows that. This is so easy 
to know and understand. Nature teaches us these things, yet people deny it because they hate God, according to Romans chapter 1. They hate God, they deny God, they deny His authority, they suppress the truth, and they promote lies instead of what is good and right. Marriage between one man and one woman, right? That should be without need of explanation. A man must not have more than one wife, nor a woman more than one husband at the same time, right? At the same time. So one man with one woman. Now, of course, if the wife dies, then the man is allowed, permitted to remarry. Or if the husband dies, the wife is allowed to remarry, but not at the same time. If the husband is alive, then she cannot remarry, right? She needs to be with her own husband. Okay, Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. And we'll pick up in verse 18. Genesis 2, 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So there, God is the one who states it's not good for the man to be alone, that he's going to make a helper fit for him. God is the one that declares this. Then God proves this to Adam by bringing the animals before him, each with their pair. But amongst all of the animals, it was obvious that there was not a helper, there was not a companion suitable to Adam. Right? Because they're all animals, and it's not fit for one of them to be with him. There's no one there like him, no one suitable for him. So God brought this need to his attention. He displayed it to him by bringing all of the animals before him, and then God is the one that provided the solution. The solution to the need of man, which is the woman, to form the woman out of the man. Right? He did not create the woman independently of the man, He did not form her out of the ground as he did the man, but rather he formed her out of the rib of the man so that even the woman has her founding, her foundation. She comes from the man, right? She came out of the man. And in this way, Adam is the father of all living. Even the father of Eve, he is the father of her because she was formed out of him. And that has implications for the headship of Adam over the human race in Romans chapter 5, right? Just as uh, God created all things through, through Adam. So God forms the woman, and as a result, the man says, this is at last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It's obvious that the woman is like me. She is a companion, a helper that is fit for me. And then the uh, application of that is that the man should leave his father and mother and hold hold fast to his wife. So the man leaves father and mother and he forms a new family, a new family with his wife and then they become a new unit of husband and wife and then they have children. And this is the way the human race will be uh, continue on from generation after after generation. So here again we see in the garden when God created marriage, he provided one woman for the man. So there was one man and there was one woman, right? Not 10 women for him, not 40 virgins for him like the Muslims teach, not a man for him like the homosexuals teach, or a woman for her, no, none of those things, but one man with one woman. 
And this is the way God established it. Okay, Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2 and verse uh, 14. Well, we'll start in verse 13. The second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking, godly offspring? So guard yourself in your spirit and let none be faithless to the wife of your youth. So there, God is the one who created the marriage and he's the one seeking godly offspring from the marriage, right? That this is the purpose of marriage, that we would have children And then we raise our children in the fear of the Lord, to fear God, to walk in His ways, and we present to God godly offspring, right? This is the purpose of the marriage, and He makes them one. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19, here our Lord Jesus Christ also weighs in on the issue of marriage and what is His expectation. which he already weighed in on it in Genesis chapter 2 and in Malachi chapter 2, but here in Jesus Christ when he was incarnate and was teaching, he also spoke concerning the issue of marriage. Matthew 19 verse 3, The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So there, Jesus believes in two genders, male and female, right? Male and female, not four, five, six, seven, however many. I don't even know how many are there today. Does anyone keep track of this stuff? It's impossible. They change it every, every other day. They add, you see that LGBT, you know, I don't use it, but they add symbols to it all the time. They should just put the whole alphabet up there. Maybe throw a couple of Hebrew letters and some Greek ones too, just for, uh, to make it look more sophisticated. Okay, so... He created them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So here Jesus teaches that, you, you, haven't you read? When they're asking him about divorce, and is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Right, any cause. If I don't like the way she cooks, is it okay for me to divorce her? If she gets on my nerves, I don't like the way she laughs, can I divorce her for that reason? And he's telling them, don't you know, haven't you read? This is in the very beginning of the Bible. Didn't you read your Bibles in Sunday school when you were kids? Didn't you study the book of Genesis? Genesis chapter 2, you only have to, if you're doing the daily Bible reading guide, day one, right? This is day one. Everyone gets through day one. They might fall off on day 20 or 30, but day one. Genesis 2, he made them male and female. He created them that way from the very beginning and said, the man shall leave father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two become one flesh, right? One flesh. Though again, when he stated that, Adam and Eve didn't have a father or a mother. They were the first two, but he's anticipating what's going to happen in future generations. You're gonna have children, And then ultimately, you're going to raise them, and they're going to leave you and go establish their own home. And then they'll have children and raise them up, and they'll leave you and establish their own home. And this is the way the human race or mankind is perpetuated from generation to generation to generation, right? This is the way it goes. And when that happens, right, it shouldn't happen outside of marriage, right? He doesn't say that we should have children outside of marriage. No, you should get married and then have children, right? That's the proper order. Marriage first, then children. Also, with that, 
marriage, then the relations that uh, the husband and wife have, and then children as a result of that. There should be no relations before a person is married. And no relations uh, without the prospect or potential of there being the children, right? Those types of things are all connected together. And that's part of what's happening in our own culture today. They've made the uh, sex something that can be performed outside of marriage and without having children. And that's not what God intended, right? right? Marriage, then the relations, then the children. They all are a package deal together. Everything is overturning God's order. God's order and what he has established for uh, humanity. So you hold fast to the wife. You leave your father and mother, you hold fast to the wife. Hold her fast, right? Not loosely, but hold her fast because the two become one flesh, right? They're one flesh. Though again, they're still two individual people, but in terms of the marriage, they are one. The wife belongs to the husband and the husband belongs to the wife. And no one ever hated his own body. He loves it, he nourishes it, he cherishes it. So also the man should love his wife in that way. That's Ephesians chapter 5. So then he says, they are no longer two but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Right? If God has brought this together in this union, this spiritual holy union that has taken place, then no man has the right to separate it. Right? They don't have the right. The court doesn't have the right. No one has the right to separate. Now then that leads them to say, then why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Then why does Moses have any regulations in the law of Moses about divorce? If, if divorce is never to happen, then why is there even any laws about divorce? And what is the answer? He said that because of your hardness of heart. He knew what kind of people you were, that you're not going to obey God, you're not going to be faithful, you're not going to be committed to your marriages, and in order to provide protection for the innocent party and for the one that is sinned against, God commanded them to write a certificate of divorce so that the one who has been sent away would have some legal document that shows that she's not married anymore and then she would have the freedom and the protection that she would need in society because of the evil that was done against her. But from the beginning, it was not so. This was not God's intention from the beginning but because of sin, then it's a necessary thing that will take place and there needs to be these protections for the innocent party whenever the divorce takes place. And then he says, I say, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Because in the sight of God, the marriage is still binding and therefore when the man divorces his wife unjustly and marries another woman, well, in God's sight, he's still married to the to the former wife, so he's committing adultery when he's with this other woman, even though legally, in the eyes of the land, they may, they may be married together. So it's committing adultery and perpetuating it. And really, again, in terms of the church and society, divorce was the big issue that took place in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, right? This is, as much as I like Ronald Reagan, this is one area where he was way off, which it was under his administration that no-fault divorce was passed nationwide uh, in, in America. That's what opened the floodgates to everything that we see, what we see today. And divorce is uh, contrary to the Bible. It's evil. It produces nothing good. So we shouldn't have it in our mind. We should stay committed, and we should stay married to our spouse. Okay, now, this is what the confession says, and it's, it accords with what the Bible teaches. So, one man, one woman, not more than one wife, and not more than one husband at the same time. Now, an issue that we need to address in relationship to this, then, would be how are we to think about the righteous, especially the righteous in the Old Testament, who had more than one wife? There are examples of those who are declared in the Old Testament to be saints, to be godly ones, to be righteous ones, but who also had more than one wife, right? A couple of examples. Abraham, right? He had Sarah, and then he had Hagar. 
Jacob had four wives. He had four wives, right? Rachel and Leah, and then their two uh, maidservants, so their nurses, that he also had them. In 1 Samuel, Elkanah had two wives. Hannah was one of them. David, we know, had multiple wives. Also, Solomon had multiple wives as well. And then there are a few other examples in the Old Testament of people who had uh, multiple wives. Now, the first thing we should say about this is this was not common and widespread, right? Many people take it as if this was happening every day. Uh, uh, Every single person was doing this. I think there's around 20 examples in the Old Testament where this was taking place. And the Old Testament covers about 4,000 years. So for about 4,000 years, you have about 20 examples of this taking place. So this wasn't something that was widespread, that was common, that was being practiced by each and every person and all over the place. So that ought to be pointed out uh, at first. So it wasn't as common as what people try to make it out to be. Also, we don't have any examples in the New Testament of someone having more than one wife or a righteous person uh, in, in that way. So the question then is, how are we to think about this? How can these people be righteous, godly, when they're committing such a flagrant sin, right? Because this isn't, we wouldn't consider this to be some mild sin, right? Some, some uh, sin that we're trying to overcome, like yeah, uh, pride or anxiety uh, or lust or fear, right? Th- these are things that we're all dealing with, we're all struggling with, we're trying to overcome these things. But we're talking about having multiple wives, right? Sometimes 10 or 20 wives or even more than that, and having that not just for a day or two or a year or two, but over the course of one's lifetime. So how can Abraham be called the man of faith when he's committing such a flagrant sin against God? How can David be called a man after God's own heart when he's committing such a flagrant sin against God? How can Solomon have more wisdom than all the men on the earth when he's committing such a flagrant, again, sin against God? Now, I will say with Solomon, there is the other issue of him taking the foreign wives who led him into idolatry, right? That's a separate issue, and the Bible condemns that. But in terms of Abraham, Jacob, David, the Bible doesn't say anything about them having multiple wives, other than it states it, but it doesn't say anything for it or against it. It doesn't present that as some great evil or a sin, and God never confronts them because of this sin, even though God interacted with Abraham many times, and God interacted with Jacob, and God spoke to David. There are many times where they interacted, and yet the Lord never brings this up and says, what are you doing? Right? Why do you have two wives? Get rid of the one. You're supposed to only have one. So this is a problem for many people when they think about this. How are we to understand the saints of the Old Testament and that this is the case? Well, one scenario would be to just say that they were committing flagrant sins against God and that they committed those sins throughout the course of their life because from the beginning, it was one man and one woman. They should have known that and this is what they should have done. Now, the problem with that interpretation would be a couple of issues. First, Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, the the problem is the testimony of the Scriptures concerning these men. How can these things be said of them if they are committing this sin that is so flagrant, so grotesque, and yet never being condemned for it, right? God never addressing it or confronting them over these things. And we know, again, that God did confront them over sins, but why did he not confront them over this? Romans chapter 4, verse 20. This was speaking of Abraham. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So they are concerning Abraham. God says, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. That's God's testimony concerning Abraham. No unbelief made him waver. He grew strong in his faith. He gave glory to God. He was fully convinced that God had the power to do what he promised. So that would be a testimony of Abraham. Also, 1 John chapter 3. 
1 John chapter 3, verse 4. First John chapter 3, verse 4. It says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So there, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, right? If you are practicing sin, you're practicing lawlessness. Well, wouldn't it be the case that they practice sin for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, right? In the case of some of them, because they had all of these wives for all of these years. Well, if they're practicing sin, they're practicing lawlessness, and there's no one who abides in him who keeps on sinning. So how can they be Christians? How can they be righteous? How can God say these things about them when they're practicing sin for 30, 40, 50 years of their life? And something that is gross, something that would be flagrant, a flagrant sin against God. Okay, another passage. 2 Samuel chapter 12. How are we to make sense of this? 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 7. This is when God confronts David through the prophet Nathan because of the sin with Bathsheba, okay, which there, again, what he did was evil. It was sinful. He committed adultery. He lied to try to cover it up, and then he committed murder against Uriah the Hittite, her um, husband, and then took her to be his wife. Okay, verse 7, chapter Uh, 12 verse 7. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. So there, notice this is God speaking, right? God is the one speaking to him through Nathan. He says, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I, I, being God, I gave you your master's house and your master's wives. So who gave David Saul's wives, according to this passage? God did. And he says, if this were too little, I would have added more to you. I would have given you more. But then he's condemned for taking as his wife, someone that didn't belong to him, someone that could not be his because she belonged to another. So here, again, if this is a sin, then why is God giving to David these wives? Why did God give to David his master's wives if this is a sin, if it's a sin for him to have more? Because when Saul was deposed, David already had a wife. So why did God give him his master's wives? and say it in this way. Uh, so that is an issue as well. How, so how are we to think about this? I think the best interpretation is to see these examples of the righteous as exceptions to the rule. There is the standard which has been established by God, and that is the standard by which we are to govern our lives. This is the standard by which we are to live, which is what is stated here in the confession, what is stated in Genesis 2, what is repeated by Christ in Matthew chapter 19, that is, the man should leave father and mother and cleave to his wife. One man with one woman. But there were a couple of exceptions to this in the Old Testament that God made, and in this case, they weren't sinning when they did this, but this isn't the rule by which we are to follow. But rather, these are exceptions to the rule which God can make if he sees fit. And there are other examples of exceptions to rules that people were supposed to follow in the Old Testament. 
So let's see a couple of examples. The first one, Judges chapter 14. Judges 14. Judges chapter 14. Are believers supposed to marry unbelievers? And the answer is no. Were Israelites supposed to marry uncircumcised Philistines? And the answer is no. Well, Samson did so, but notice why he did it. Because it tells us why he married the uncircumcised Philistine girl. Judges 14, Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah, now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all your people that you must take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Okay, so here Samson is taking as a wife a daughter of the Philistines. His mother and father know that this isn't right, right? And that's why they push back and they say, isn't there an Israelite girl that you could marry that you have to go down to these uncircumcised Philistines and take a daughter from theirs, right? Take a wife from among these people. And he says, no, this is the one I want. Get her for for me. She is right in my eyes. Then verse four, his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. So who was it from? Well, it says there, the Lord. The Lord was leading Samson to do this. What was not commonly done and what they should not be doing as the rule, God in this case had an exception to the rule because he wanted Samson to marry her. For what reason? So he could go strike down the Philistines. This was going to be the means used by God and used by Samson to give him a foot into the Philistines so that he could go and kill them, which is what God raised him up to do. The parents didn't know that it was from the Lord, but who did know it was from the Lord? Samson did, and that's why Samson proposed it and brought it forward. So in this case, they weren't supposed to marry Philistines, but it wasn't a sin for Samson to marry the Philistine girl because it was from the Lord. It was from the Lord, and it is an exception. Okay, how about Hosea chapter 1? Hosea chapter 1. What about prostitutes? Should we marry prostitutes? Anyone think that the Bible teaches that it's okay to marry a prostitute? No, we should not do that. We should not encourage our children to do that, but rather we should marry believers and those who are righteous. Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Bari, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the, Lord, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. So did Hosea sin by taking a wife of whoredom? No. Actually, he would have sinned if he didn't do it, because who told him to do it? God did. So in this case, the rule, which is you shouldn't marry a prostitute, is overthrown. There's an exception in the case of Hosea, because God is going to make a point through Hosea, even though it's going to be very difficult on him because he's going to have to put up with her, and yet God is doing this. He's making the exception to the rule. So as a rule, we shouldn't marry prostitutes, but in this case, Hosea did. He didn't sin against God because it was an exception to the rule. Okay, next, Isaiah chapter 20. Should we walk around naked? The answer is no, we should not do that, okay? We should not walk around publicly exposed and publicly naked. However, Isaiah walked around naked, and did he sin against God when he did that? And the answer is no. So generally speaking, the rule that we should live by is that we should clothe ourselves 
and we should dress modestly. This is not modest. This is very immodest that Isaiah does, but he's commanded by God to do it. So in this case, he's not sinning because he's doing what God tells him to do in order to make a point. Isaiah chapter 20. In the year that the commander-in-chief, who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it, at that time the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amoz, and said, Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Then the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years, three years, not three minutes, not three days, three years God had him doing this, as a sign important against Egypt and Cus, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both the young and the old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt." Then they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush, their hope, in Egypt, their boast. And the inhabitants of this coastland will say on that day, Behold, this is what has happened to those in whom we hoped, in whom we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we, how shall we escape? So here, the Lord commands Isaiah, or uh, yeah, Isaiah to walk around for three years naked with his buttocks exposed as a sign of what was going to happen to Egypt and Cush, this is what Assyria is going to do to them, and those are the ones you're putting your hope in to save you from the Assyrians, to make a point, to show them these things. So again, generally speaking, the rule that we should live by is to dress and to dress modestly and to cover ourselves appropriately. But in this case, Isaiah did not sin against God for walking around naked for three years because God told him to. God commanded. Actually, he would have sinned had he not done it, because this is what God expected of him. Okay, one more passage, Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 4. Ezekiel chapter 4. Should we cook our food on human dung? The answer is no, we should never do that. But Ezekiel was commanded by God to do this, okay? Though this is contrary to, it's contrary to anything good and right, right? No one wants to do this. And it was contrary clearly to the laws of cleanliness, ritual cleanliness in the Old Testament. This was an impurity, a defilement for someone to have to do this. But God expected Ezekiel to do it because he was trying to, again, He's making a point, right? He's proving something. Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 9 says, And you, take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and emmer, and put them in a single vessel and make your bread from them. During the number of days that you lie on your side, 390 days you shall eat it. And your food that you shall eat uh, shall be by weight, 20 shekels a day, from day to day you shall eat it. And water you shall drink by measure, the sixth part of a hen, from day to day you shall drink, and you shall eat it as a barley cake, baking it in their sight on human dung. And the Lord said, Thus shall the people of Israel eat their bread unclean among the nations where I will drive them. Then I said, Ah, oh, Lord God, behold, I have never defiled myself. From my youth up until now, I have never eaten what died of itself or what was torn by beasts, nor has tainted meat come into my mouth. So God announces this to Ezekiel, what he wants him to do. And Ezekiel is uh, aghast because I've never done anything like this. I've never eaten anything unclean. But he's followed these laws because he wants to be a clean person before God. So how can I do this is what he's saying. So God makes a concession for him. He says, then he said to me, see, I sign to you cow's dung instead of human dung on which you may prepare your bread. So instead of human, you can do it on cow, which is less grotesque than human, but still, nobody wants to do that either, right? It's, it's still a defilement to do these types of things, and it's not keeping with the laws concerning cleanliness in terms of the ritual, right? And, and Ezekiel understands this clearly. I've never done these things, but here God expects him to do it. So again, the general rule is they should not cook their meat or their food over human dung or cow dung. But in this case, Ezekiel is commanded, and if Ezekiel doesn't do it, 
he would be sinning against God. So this is an exception to the rule. So I think that's the best way of understanding and looking at these examples in the Old Testament of Abraham, Jacob, David, uh, others like that, who did have more than one wife. We shouldn't follow that example because it's contrary to the rule established by God. But because these were righteous men, those who feared God and walked in his ways, it's very difficult for me to say that they committed these flagrant sins for the majority of their life and that they were never confronted on these things. Especially when you take 2 Samuel chapter 12, where the Lord is himself saying that he gave to David his master's wives. So I think the best way is to understand it is that these were exceptions to the rule and that in this case, David did not sin. He did sin with Bathsheba because she belonged to someone else, but he did not sin in having these other wives that the Lord gave to him. And that that is the best way. But that we ourselves, in our practice, and what we teach and hold to, should have only one wife. And each wife should only have one, one husband. And I say that because, again, it is very common in the churches to slander and ridicule the saints of the Old Testament, especially the Old Testament, as if these people were so bereft of righteousness and godliness that they're just bumbling and stumbling through life like a bunch of idiots and that we would never do the things that they did. Right? This is the general view that people have toward the righteous of the Old Testament. But when you read the Bible, is that the view that the Bible has toward them? No, it treats them with reverence, with respect. Now, the Bible doesn't downplay their sin. When they do commit sin, it, it says that, like we read in 2 Samuel chapter 12. But David did commit that sin, and it was a great sin. But what he also did was he lived a very godly life. He was defined by God as a righteous man who feared him, who walked in his ways. So we should hold them up as examples for us to follow people who are godly, and we shouldn't slander them or demean them where the Bible doesn't demean them and call them great, great sinners. So again, I think that's the best way of interpreting that, the most satisfactory, that takes the whole breadth of Scripture. So that's where we'll stop today. But for us, one man, one woman, right? Committed together uh, until death do them part. So to that end, let's pray, and then we will be dismissed. Well, Father, we again thank you, Lord, for your word and the clarity that it gives us, Lord, in a day in which there is so much confusion, Lord, so much turmoil, Lord, so much evil that is going on. Lord, everywhere we look, we see that this most noble of institutions of marriage is being undermined. Lord, it's being undermined in society, in culture, Lord, in the in the courts, in the administration, Lord, the policies, everything, Lord, is geared to, against families, against marriage, Lord, against what is good and right in your sight. And Lord, we pray that this negative view of marriage, Lord, of the relationship between the husband and wife, Lord, that it would not creep into our mind, but Lord, that we would be able to see these things and that we would reject them and that we would do what is good and right in your sight. So Lord, may we hold our marriages to be a covenant, Lord, and be steadfast to, to that covenant, Lord, not forsaking the wife of our youth. And Lord, may we take serious, Lord, this commitment that we've made to one another. And Lord, take serious, Lord, the purpose, which is to raise up godly offspring. And Lord, we pray that you would give to us godly offspring, Lord, as we train them in the fear of the Lord. Lord, be with us as we go from here today. We pray that you continue to to bless this Lord's Day. Lord, help us to continue to worship you and to honor you in all that we do. Lord, be with us this week as we go out and go to our jobs and, Lord, the responsibilities that we have. Lord, help us to do your will, to walk with you in truth and in uprightness. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.